morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 6, 2013. This is broadcast number 40. And I was just reflecting this morning as I was thinking about the fact that it is now August. And I thought, you know, the semester ended about mid-May, and that seems like a couple minutes ago. This summer has absolutely flown by. Now, I have no idea why. I can probably guess there's some of the reasons as to, the, as to why that is. And I'm sure those listening to this can, can uh, there's a certain level of agreement as to how fast the summer has gone. But it has really flown by. In a couple of weeks, we'll be starting school, classes again here around Greenville Seminary. So people are beginning to ramp up and get their syllabuses in order and their books and all that good stuff that needs to be done. But it has been a very fast-paced summer. We're glad you're listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope. If you have any questions about the podcast, you can email me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. You can always go to the website at confessingourhope.com. In addition to that, just this morning, as a matter of fact, I started our own Facebook page. Isn't that what everybody does now? Facebook, um, it's like the new internet. At least I've heard that or read that somewhere. But anyway, I started a Facebook page for the podcast specifically where other information, in fact, probably repeat information from the website to the Facebook page will be there. So wherever you may be, whether you're on Facebook or not on Facebook, you can find out the inform- all the information for this podcast in either location. Don't forget about the mobile app. It's free. We have almost a thousand downloads now of the app and it's being widely used across the United States as well as in other countries. So I'm very encouraged to see people taking advantage of that resource. And of course, if you want to find out more information about Greenville Seminary, the website is simply GPTS, which stands for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary dot edu. There you'll get all the information about our professors, our academic program, and any just about any other question you may have, it's there. If you don't know, can't find the answer, write us at info at gpts.edu, and somebody will answer you very quickly. This morning, we do have the pleasure of having a guest on that's been on before. In fact, I think he's been on twice before, so he's becoming a staple around here, as it were. Um, but uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw, who is uh, the minister out at uh, First OPC in Sunnyvale, California, is on the program to talk about his book, recent book, um, Christ's Glory, Your Good, Salvation Plan, Promised, Accomplished, and Applied. Ryan McGraw is a graduate of Greenville Seminary and is currently working on his doctorate or has completed working on it. I'm not really sure where he is on it, but I'm sure he'll tell us at some point. And he'll even tell us us at some point what his doctorate's about. I guarantee it that'll come up at some point. But Ryan, it's good to have you on again to talk about this book, um, a book that I have benefited from um, preaching through Philippians in my internship at, at Calvary Presbyterian Church here in Greenville. Uh, there's a couple chapters in there that have that have been very helpful to me in understanding uh, some difficult passages, passages that have got a lot of press, as it were, through the years. But anyway, it's good to have you on, and I know it's early where you are, but um, hopefully you have your coffee close by. I do. <laughs> very good. <laughs> this book is interesting. Um, I, I, yesterday I just interviewed uh, one of your former professors and one of my current professors, Dr. Tony Curto. And mentioned to him that I would be having you on today to talk about this book. And he 
said to me, he said, well, make sure you ask him how that book came to be. So <laughs> how did Christ's glory, your good, come to be? Well, uh, through a number of avenues, but uh, one thing that Dr. Curdo has in mind, no doubt, is when I took his evangelism and missions course at Greenville Seminary, he asked the students to write a gospel tract with no page restrictions. And the idea was to include everything that was necessary to present the gospel in a full-orbed way. Uh, for instance, a basic doctrine of God and of Christ and of man and um, the church and all of these other things. So in some sense, the assignment that he gave us in that course uh, inspired me to write this book, which is um, uh, just over 100 pages, um, basically presenting the gospel from eternity to eternity in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in a short compass, this book ends up being a lengthy gospel tract, uh, but also a summary of the theology of the Bible, a uh, popular overview of systematic theology, but all in the form of basically sermons and addressed to a wide audience and even an unbelieving audience. And I'm, I'm hoping that by the blessing of the Lord, the book will be used even for the conversion of people. I know that uh, the Lord has used it that way when I've preached the material in two churches. So um, that's, that's my goal, and it did originate with that idea in Dr. Curdo's class, and then I preached this material twice as eight sermons and then made this small book out of it. Wonderful. Now I'm going to ask you a question that I'm willing to bet you've never got on a book you've written. But it was interesting to me. Um, I read these things, and sometimes I ask myself, I wonder why they did that. You dedicated this book to your mother. Yes. And I, knowing you as well as I do, I know that didn't come with just because you had to put somebody down. <laughs> so why your mom on this book specifically? I mean, you could have done one of your other books to your mom, but why this one? Well, uh, and for a number of reasons. I mean, one, for example, you mentioned my, um, my PhD project, and now you're giving me the window to talk about it. Well, you were um, going to talk about it anyway, so there was. I might as well just get that out there up front and get it over with, as it were. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, Lord willing, I'm going through the publication process for that with uh, Vandenhoek and Ruprecht. And it's going to be an academic thesis. It is an academic thesis. Um, the book would be very expensive and is something that I would hope pastors and scholars would be interested in. But somebody like my mother or other family members uh, would not. And so with this book, since this is dedicated to a popular audience, in general, this is really the book that I pray to the Lord. Uh, if my family members read one book that I've ever written, this would be the one that I would want them to read. 
And also, uh, my mother, of course, has uh, been uh, a blessing to me in God's providence in the ways in which she's cared for me and raised me over the years. And uh, I want her to see more of the glory of Christ as I do my other relatives. And so uh, dedicated this to her. And I'm also sending this to different friends and family members and praying for the Lord's blessing in that way. Wonderful. I don't recall ever asking an author that question before, but like I said, I think it, it came from the fact that I know you personally and know that you typically don't just put things down just because. And right. so there had to be some genesis or thought behind it. Um, you didn't just fill the page with someone that you had to dedicate it to, as it were. You didn't have to dedicate it to anybody, but... In this case, I thought that was interesting, and I thought I'd ask up front that question. Now, you did mention in the introduction, you talk about <clears throat> the book is framed, and I, and I didn't really notice this, to be honest, as I was going through it. And until you said it, I flipped to the table of contents, and I looked, and I thought, you know, he's right. Of course he's right. He wrote the book. But the book is framed from the glory of Christ and eternity past to eternity, eternity future. And obviously that was by deliberate intent. But why was it so important, and why is it so important that we start, if we're going to deal with the, the, the glory of Christ and this whole topic, why is it so important we start with Christ and eternity past, if you, if you like that phrase? But I think you know what I mean. I think the general purpose is to begin with the triune God himself and with his eternal glory. And so essentially, we're beginning with Christ as the second person in the Trinity. And when we begin in eternity and we talk about salvation, we begin talking about a plan of God. And specifically, a plan between the persons in the Godhead and uh, the Son in that plan will come and become incarnate and purchase the elect of God. And in due time, the Spirit will come and apply the benefits of redemption to those people. And that's why in the subtitle of the book, I have salvation planned, promised, accomplished, and applied. Salvation planned begins with a triune God and His glory in eternity. Uh, promised, in some sense, carries us through the Old Testament, which I've largely tried to do through the lens of uh, Genesis 3.15 and the first gospel promise there. And then uh, accomplished is where most of the book hovers in the actual work of Jesus Christ in his incarnation and life and death and so on. And then the application is the spirit uniting us to Christ and bringing us to glory. So in essence, this enables us to look at the gospel in a very God-centered fashion. The gospel doesn't begin with man and with his plight and his condition, but it begins with God and with his plan and with his glory. And my goal in, in this whole book is really to drive people to a deeper love for the persons of the Godhead and especially for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. Uh, really, if I have one goal in this book, it's that people would walk away loving the glory of God and marveling at Jesus Christ. 
Mm. That's well said. And it's so important, as as you were talking, I was thinking about how in our culture today, you talk about when you talk about Jesus, you talk about Christ. There's so many different opinions out there. Most of them completely wrong, um, as it pertains to the eternal nature of the Son, the eternal generation of the Son, His existence in eternity past as the as the Son of God, uh, taking on flesh. And most people that are religious at some level accept the reality that Jesus was a person, that He was a good man. He was a, in some sense a prophet or or a good teacher, um, but when you press the issue of his eternality, and the centrality and the importance of his eternality, they they waver. And I thought that was it's good if you're going to deal with the glory of Christ and the, and the purpose and plan of salvation, how it's accomplished. If you don't start with the eternal nature of the Son, you really can't write anymore. There's nothing to talk about if he was just a good prophet or a good man. Would you agree? Yes, I agree. And and that's uh, what makes the gospel so astonishing, is it begins with this glorious, self-sufficient, triune God who doesn't need us and who doesn't need to save us. And this eternal Son of God became man. And as the Catechism puts it, so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And I really wanted to... Uh, convey something about that and I should add uh, this this little book is a series of uh, I hesitate to say topical sermons because obviously if you read them they're not uh, standalone sermons and not what people usually think of when the term topical sermon comes up because if you look at each book what I basically do is go into a specific text of scripture that speaks to the issue and expound the text at length. And so you mentioned Philippians earlier. What I try to do is situate that exposition of Philippians 2 in the overall argument of Philippians. So these are are sermons that are explaining these books of the Bible and connecting them and situating them in the flow of redemptive history in the Bible as a whole. But then they also tie together into that the system of theology in a simple way and then drive things home to the heart by way of application. So in some sense, I've tried to provide a popular model of how to do careful biblical exegesis, weaving it into the scope of redemptive history, uh, tying in the system of Reformed theology and aiming at the heart the whole time. Mm. Yeah, so while I, I certainly came away from that, especially, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, the sections in Philippians, and since you've mentioned that, and since I'm the host of the program, I get to ask any question I want, right? Well, <laughs> in a sense, in a sense, I get to ask any question. I try to ask questions that I think listeners are are possibly going to have as you're talking, but there is one question, and, and this is obviously not, we're not dealing with the book chapter to chapter to chapter. I'm kind of jumping around. If you want to get that, those listening, you need to buy the book. I mean, really, uh, that's the, one of the goals of doing this is not just to give you information, but to encourage you to buy the book, read it in its totality, because we're not going to cover every nuance and every specific element of the book. We don't have time. But it's, it's there to interest you or cause some interest. And I do have one question 
as it pertains to that Philippians passage, it was in the chapter on the exaltation of Christ, um, way towards the end of the book, uh, as you're systematically moving through from Christ in eternity past to the exalted Lord and where he now sits and reigns. And in chapter 8, you're dealing with, or not chapter 8, chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's even chapter 6. Yeah, no, it's chapter 7. 7. Um, yeah. And I just creased my book, and I know you felt that all the way over there in California. <laughs> I was well, chat just. It, it, I don't know what to expect for the paperback. It, for people who are listening, I got ch- chastised, as it were, as Pastor McGraw was sitting in one of my Sunday school classes when he was visiting here in Greenville, and he saw me constantly creasing the center of this paperback book, and he told me I was never allowed to borrow any of his books because I do that. Well, yes, I do do that on paperbacks. I don't do it with hardcovers, but I think uh, anyway. I think creasing is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, beating on is probably closer. But there was a, there was a point where, where I, I mentioned I was pre- preaching through Philippians, and I and I reached that that glorious passage in Philippians two, starting in verse five. But and I split that up. I preached five through eight, and then I preached nine through eleven. Um, and in that section, in verses nine through eleven, you deal with it in the book. And I just want to read the passage for the sake of the listeners, maybe driving or mowing their lawn or whatever else they're doing when they listen. Um, Paul just simply writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, for many years I read that passage, and if someone were to ask me, what did Paul mean when he says he bestowed on him the name that is above every name? My answer would have been what I think just about everybody else I've ever talked to, their answer would have been the answer is in verse 10. The name is Jesus. But you make an argument in the book, which was intriguing to me, that that's not the name. And you're not alone in this, of course. I, I decided to look elsewhere to see just exactly how this all squares. And you make the argument that the, the, the culmination of the name, the name that's given to Christ, is really in verse 11. Can you elaborate on this, maybe get in, get, take us inside your thought process as you argued this in the book, which I thought you did very well and was very helpful to me. Yes, um, and this is uh, largely something you could find, for example, in especially Peter O'Brien's commentary mm-hmm. on uh, Philippians, which I found very helpful, and also Walter Hansen in the uh, Pillar New Testament series. And there's, there's others. I found those to be particularly helpful. But the idea is uh, not simply, I believe, that at the, uh, the name that is bestowed upon him is the name Jesus, which, of course, in some sense, is not a name given to him at his exaltation, but a name given to him at his humiliation, at his birth. You shall mm-hmm. call his name Jesus, for he shall take, you know, so save his people from their sins, uh, Matthew one twenty one. So the name that is being bestowed upon him in Philippians 2 seems to be Lord. And I argue in the book, and these commentators do in their commentaries, that that name is essentially equivalent to the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. And so the question, of course, then is if Jesus uh, has been Yahweh 
from eternity past, I should say the Son of God has been Yahweh from eternity past, how then does it say at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, saying he's Lord, which I take to be Yahweh. I think the difference is this. Um, the Son of God has been the eternal Son of God uh, eternally, forever. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing new about that. But there is something new and profound about the fact that now the Son of God has taken on human flesh and that no one in heaven and earth ever again will be able to worship Yahweh as, as God without simultaneously confessing that Jesus is Yahweh. And I think that's the point of the text, is that the Son of God goes through his humiliation, his incarnation, taking the form of a slave, and then after his course of obedience and death on the cross, his resurrection brings him up to the heights of heaven, and people must worship Jesus as Yahweh. And I begin the book uh, in the introduction uh, making the statement that may be surprising to some that without the incarnation and without the uh, plan of salvation, Jesus Christ would not exist. Uh, The Son of God always has been and always will be the Son of God. But when we use the name Jesus Christ, we're not referring to the eternal Son of God in and of himself. We're referring to the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins and to be anointed with the Spirit above measure and to be the Christ. And we need to recognize, I think, that that's the focus of Philippians 2. Just one practical example of that. This, in essence, is why no one can come to the Father apart from Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, This is why Jesus says to the Jews in the Gospel of John that you know neither me nor my Father. In other words, they say we worship the Father, we worship the one God. Jesus says, no, you don't, because you don't recognize me. And so this puts an exclamation point and underscores the fact that if we would know God, and if God would be our Father, and if we worship the true God in any sense that is not idolatrous, we must worship Jesus Christ as Yahweh. Yep. I, I, you know, when I read that in your book, as I said, I, it was, I had never considered that. Uh, maybe that's to my shame. I don't know. I don't care. I learned. I mean, I, I looked at it. I said, okay, well, that's what McGraw thinks. Fine. He's not perfect. Let me see what else. And, and I actually looked at O'Brien because I have that commentary. Well, he, and he made the same argument. And it, so I sat down. And I really began to ponder the reality of this. And I thought, you know, it's interesting. As I thought through the Old Testament and, I, and how God is so zealously jealous for his own name, how he protects his name, how he reveres his own name, commands uh, sinful men to revere his name, to uh, consider it holy. Um, and I went through this, and then I looked at the passage that you referenced on Isaiah 45, and I started thinking through that, and I said, you know, I don't know how you can cause the God-man to be more exalted than to give him the name Yahweh as the God-man. If God shares his glory with no man, and if his glory is bound up in his own name, then 
this is tremendous exaltation. This is the super exalted nature of the God-man as God places his own name, as it were, on the Son. Right. And and that's what I argued in the sermon, and, and I got one comment from, I won't say who it was, um, but I did ask this person um, what they thought of, my, of the argument, um, obviously not unique with me, but um, the answer was, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to have to think about it some more. Right. Fine. I mean, that's a, that's a fair answer, but I, you know, it, it was, you could see by the reaction when I, I even quoted from your book in the sermon when I made the rough comment that had, had Christ never come taken on flesh, there would be no person Jesus. He was always God, the son, as you said, but that changed everything. Yeah. The Christ is an office. That's right. Takes. That's right. Well, and uh, in in God's providence, this coming Sunday, I'm just finishing a series in the evening on John 17, and uh, I find it interesting in that passage, Jesus is praying to the Father, "Glorify your Son uh, with the glory that He had with you before the world was." Mm. And I actually argue the same thing in that sermon. Uh, very interesting. This is something of, a, of, a, of an aside, but treats the same issue in the book. So this goes a little bit beyond the book, but treats the same subject. In reading a lot of Puritan sermons in John 17, two things were striking to me. That all of the 17th century authors that I read believe that this was a glory as mediator, Mm. and a glory unique to Christ as mediator, and what they, what they believe he was referring to was this eternal plan within the Godhead and the place of Christ within it. So this is a mediatorial glory that's rooted in eternity and now is going to be displayed before the whole world in answer to Christ's prayer. The other thing that struck me was that almost none of the modern commentaries on John 17 take the same view. But the modern commentaries like O'Brien and others on Philippians do take this view of Christ's exaltation in, in there's a, a bestowal of this glory on the God-man that is something distinct and is something standing out. And it does seem to me that that's what Christ is praying for in John 17. He's longing, in essence, for Philippians 2 to be fulfilled and to see his glory revealed for the salvation of his people. Absolutely. I. It- it just changed. Well, changed. It 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 altered my understanding of that whole entire aspect of the nature of Christ, because it, it's it's almost comfortable, as it were, to leave Christ as a man, Jesus, Christ, fine, but to then consider him as the God-man who has the name of Yahweh placed squarely upon him with all of the, everything that goes behind that. It just, as Paul does with the word in in verse 9, you know, highly exalted or super exalted. To me, you can't be more super exalted than that. There's nothing to be above it. It's as high as one could go. And um, I, and I so much appreciated that section of the book. It was just very helpful and a dear, um, mutual friend of ours um actually pointed the the another section of the book out um 
as I was working through Philippians, he actually had it and showed it to me and said, you know, you ought to read through this because this will help you help you with dealing with some of these aspects in Philippians. So it's very helpful. So that's a little plug, by the way. So if you, you know, these kinds of books, you think, ah, you know, I'll read them and I'll never see them again. Um, and there are books like that that exist. But this is the kind of book where, you know, if you're preaching through Philippians, as an example, um, there's lots of meat in there to use and help think through some of these things. Because Philippians 2, that passage 5 through 11, isn't exactly the easiest passage in the world to unpack. Uh, I don't think. Uh, maybe that's because I'm a rookie. But um, No, and, and especially it's been a lightning rod for controversy in the 20th century. Exactly. Because the phrase ekinosin, uh, uh, or he, he emptied himself, uh, liberal theology is typically taken as being a uh, sign of emptying himself of his godhead or of his deity in some sense. And maybe I should add just for clarity, in the book I've got eight chapters, and the first chapter begins in eternity. Chapter 2 uses Genesis 3.15 as the thesis statement of the Bible, and then chapter 3 begins with Philippians uh, 2 verses 5 through 8 where I treat the yep. incarnation and then uh, the following chapters flesh out what that means in terms of Christ's obedience, Christ's suffering, and Christ's resurrection. So as it were, I begin with Philippians 2 and expound the first part and uh, open the door to deal with Christ's life and his obedience and his suffering and then his resurrection. And then in his exaltation, I come back and, as it were, close the parenthesis with, with uh, the other part of Philippians 2. But the one thing I wanted to relate about this that uh, listeners might find uh, encouraging and interesting is I had a man in my former congregation whose father had been a liberal minister and did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and particularly hammered home on Philippians 2 of him emptying himself. Well, on the particular Sunday when I began preaching on Philippians 2, in God's providence this man's father decided to come and visit. And so uh, immediately I'm preaching the exact opposite view that he's, he's learned in seminary and, and been teaching his whole life and literally had never heard an opposing view that Jesus Christ always was the eternal Son of God. And so when I think about this book, that's a reminder to listeners today that in preaching or in reading a book like this, or in my case in writing a book like this, the most essential thing is always to go to the Lord in fervent prayer for the blessing of the Spirit. And it's my prayer for books like this, for sermons like this, that, Lord, if you have blessed this in any measure and if you are present, then use this material beyond my gifts, beyond my ability to glorify Christ. May the Spirit be present. And that's what I prayed for, and, and I think the Lord was faithful in answering that in numerous ways in the preaching. Uh, seems to have been doing that in the reading thus far and uh, spread the book farther than I had uh, even anticipated. And I do encourage those who would take up the book from listening to this interview to be in prayer for the Spirit's blessing on yourself, but also 
to give the book to people and to be in prayer that they would take it up and the Spirit would use this to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ and to illumine their hearts to embrace Him. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's it, as you just said, it's um, you almost never know. <laughs> you, you write a book like this and you think, well, hmm. <coughs> excuse me, but you, but you, but as you mentioned, you know, you pray that the Lord would bless it if He's involved in it and works with it. I, I remember one time, just to encourage you a little bit, you, you were sharing your study habits, as it were. I mean, I don't know that you put it that way, but that's how I took it, and that how you never sit down to study whatever it is or read a book, whatever it may be, without first praying and asking the Lord to bless the labors and the work and the efforts and the, and the whole thing. And I, and I, and it stopped me short because I reflected on my own study habits and realized that what do I do? I, I grab the book off the shelf, I start reading it, and then I wonder why I don't get anything out of it. Or I don't wonder why nothing's happening or I can't re remember what I'm reading or why is nothing stirring in my own soul about any of this I'm what I'm what am I doing I'm depending on my own intellectual capacity to understand these things and um, so I've changed the way I proceed now that's not a magic formula but it's just the point is is that praying before studying praying before writing praying before doing any of these matters demonstrates a dependence that we ought to have frankly on the spirits work and whatever it is we put our hands to and um, so I started doing that so you don't you didn't even know that um, it was a, it was an aside comment you made to me months ago and you don't even know that God used that little comment well, <laughs> so the Lord. It's, it's amazing what happens when you ask the Lord to bless things and and you, you bathe it in prayer and that kind of thing I want to hasten yeah. on real quick we're, we're running short on time and I do but I do want to uh, talk Obviously, we're not going to deal with every chapter, as I've already said. But the, but chapter four of the book is you're you're beginning to bridge. You, you've come out of the Philippians two issue, um, and as you've said, it's sort of opening the door now to the to the other side of the Philippians two issue. And you talk about the obedience of Christ. Now, this is one of those things that I think um, people stumble over, get a little they they they, they it readily admit that. Christ was perfect. He obeyed perfectly in every capacity, both motive, both emotionally, mentally, with his will, with his actions, the whole nine yards, right? But there's a there's a verse in Hebrews 5 that you use here in the beginning of chapter 4, where, um, and I'm just going to cut to the bottom of the section where it says, yet, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, the question then is, how could... Jesus Christ, the, 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 the God-man, learn obedience. Yes, and uh, as it says, he learned obedience, the next part of the verse even adds being made perfect. He became right. the author of eternal salvation. And I think the idea of perfection there doesn't imply any previous defect in Christ, but it does refer to a completion of his obedience, and I want to unpack that just a little bit. In the chapter, I cite the Hebrews passage you, you mentioned, but also Galatians chapter 4, where Jesus Christ was born of a woman and made under the law for the suffering of death. And the point is that here, when the eternal Son of God takes on human flesh, 
he does so to be subject to the law of God in all of its respects and in all of its parts. Now, a common theme starts emerging. In mm. Philippians 2, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In Galatians 4, he was made under the law for the suffering of death. And then here in um, Hebrews 5, he was made perfect through the things that he suffered. And the picture that's given of Jesus Christ is a life of law-keeping that finds its climax in the cross. And the cross is a perfection or completion of a process. What's important for us to recognize is when we speak of someone being sinless and perfect, as difficult as it is for our sinful minds to comprehend, this doesn't imply a static, unmoving state. Mm. And let me illustrate this. A perfect two-year-old, and there our imagination perhaps really struggles to uh, uh, perceive what perfection would look like as a two-year-old, but a perfect two-year-old obeys differently than a perfect 12-year-old. And he could be equally sinless and yet have a different mental capacity, have learned different things, be responsible for different aspects of life, um, and also a 12-year-old is different than a 30-year-old man who's been trained as a carpenter uh, under his adoptive father. And so when we think about all of those different aspects of the life of Jesus Christ, I should add to that as well, uh, Christ had different responsibilities and relationships placed upon him after his baptism and the start of his public ministry than he did as a child and throughout his life up to that point. Uh, he received a, a distinct calling. So to say that he learned obedience and he became perfect is not to imply that somehow he was sinful, he made mistakes as he went along and he learned from his mistakes and he moved on. But uh, as, as Owen puts it, his experience of the truth always kept step with his knowledge of the truth. As he mm. grew in responsibility, as he grew in knowledge, as he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, as Luke puts it, then he also grew in the experimental use of the truth. And he's the only human being that has ever done that since Adam fell in the garden. And the point of the chapter is not simply to marvel at Jesus' perfection, but to show that not simply on the cross, but culminating in the cross, his entire life remedied the defects of our sinful hearts. He obeyed for us and on our behalf at every single stage of life. And this is what uh, Theologians have often referred to as the active obedience of Jesus Christ. In other words, the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us who believe in the Son of God, who believe in Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it. And so through the righteous act and the righteousness of this one man, many are made righteous. And this is because Christ obeyed every possible stage of life. In another book, the way I put it is that here Jesus Christ 
is a walking transcript of God's law. And now as we believe in Christ, that righteousness is first imputed to us. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit, as it were, puts Jesus Christ as, as a copy next to us. And the pen of the Holy Spirit starts inscribing his character under our own hearts. Mm. Yeah, very good. And, and it kind of pro- it prompts a question for me, one I know the answer to already, but there, <clears throat> there may be some that don't or have considered this. But why, why wasn't it enough? And I think that's a fair way to ask the question. Why wasn't it enough for Christ to just be born and a few days later die? Yeah, and as, as far as the time of his life and the duration of it, that is, and, and his death and so on, right. we, um, we can't give an exact answer in the sense of why, why 30 or 33 years, depending on how you count time, um, or where you start, I should say. We, hopefully we count time the same way. But uh, <laughs> right. when, we, when we think about that, it was important uh, in relation to this topic for Jesus Christ to fill up the full measure of the law. He had to positively obey its commandments at every stage of life and in a variety of circumstances of life because we bear the guilt of our sin and the effects of our sin in relation to all of those things. And then on the other side... Um, it was important for him to bear the penalties of that broken law. And so while Adam simply had to obey the uh, commands of God and avoid its prohibitions in his heart and his speech and behavior, Christ did that in his heart, speech and behavior and fulfilled it. But uh, here the obedience and the suffering start blending together as the Hebrews 5 passage hints at. He had to suffer the penalty of the broken law for our, on our behalf as well. And so it's important uh, for Christ not only to obey the law in every respect as our representative and to impute his righteousness to us, but uh, now I'm spilling into the next chapter. It's mm-hmm. also important for Jesus Christ in his suffering, not only on the cross, but in every stage of life. And maybe I can make a personal confession here. Um, there's a lot behind this book that in presenting it in a popular way, uh, in some sense, I'm not presenting everything that I've read. I'm not trying to dump out uh, all the people that have influenced me other than stating them in the introduction just to be uh, upfront and honest that this is not my own material and I've been influenced by many people and expressing it my own way. But here I have to say there was a stage in my Christian life where I was floored in reading Herman Vitzius on the economy of the covenants between God and man. And when he speaks about the sacrifice of Christ and the suffering of Jesus Christ, he actually begins his section in volume one of that that set by saying uh, we can make uh, two little out of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And my first thought was, well, of course, people undermine the cross. They don't understand that he satisfies divine justice. Mm-hmm. But essentially, Vitzius says, no, no, no. Even if you understand that he satisfies divine justice, you can make too little out of Christ's sufferings. Because he points out that all of his 
uh, suffering and persecution and everything he suffered from being uh, chased down by Herod as an infant all the way to his death on the cross, he still suffered for us. And that's not to undermine the fact that the, the cross is the high point, but he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and his whole life was vicarious suffering for sinners. And the practical outworking of that is not simply looking to Christ and saying, here is my righteousness in the sight of God through his obedience, and here is the one who through a sin offering took away my guilt and my sin, but here is the one who suffered all the effects of sin in the entire course of life. And what this means is that Jesus Christ, by his obedience, by his suffering, by his death, has completely transformed my relationship to my trials. Mm. And so in mm. every single aspect of my life, what this means is that no longer am I enduring hardship as the penalty for my sin. But now I'm enduring trials and afflictions because of the loving hand of a father who's disciplining me. But also, Jesus Christ walks with me and walks with his people in the midst of our trials and actually uses them by his work through his word and his spirit to sanctify us and eventually bring us to glory. So the beauty of this in, in looking at the whole life of Christ, not simply his death and his birth, is to recognize that, that literally the life of Christ and the death of Christ in obedience and suffering uh, affects, changes our lives in every possible respect. And I can't avoid adding at least one John Owen comment here. We make well, you've, already had, you've already had one, I've, John. I've already had one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in one more so you can uh, take vengeance later somehow. But uh, <laughs> uh, Owen, Owen interestingly says... Uh, that he doesn't like the term the passive obedience of Christ. I think it's interesting because today you hear a lot of people say, I don't like the active obedience of Christ, and they try to relegate everything to the cross and negate all the rest of the, this stuff we've been talking about. But Owen says, um, strictly speaking, passive obedience is incorrect because Jesus Christ actively submitted to his Father in every stage of life, even on the cross. And obedience, strictly speaking, is always active. Now, I'm not going to press the language that far, and I'm perfectly capable and, and fine with talking about passive obedience. But he does at least highlight the fact that this is not simply the death of a martyr, but this is someone who is actively taking up his cross. Oh, that's a great So point. that he could teach us to actively take up our crosses and follow yeah. him. What a great point. It wasn't that it just was afflicted upon him, but he willingly he willingly was afflicted on him. Uh, I forget where in the Gospels where it says that Christ sent his, set his face um, right. set, set his face to go to go to Jerusalem. I mean it was intentional. Um, he knew exactly what what was ahead. Uh, he, it was the message he preached to his disciples even though they didn't get it half the time, most of the time. Um, it was directly uh, by his own intent. Um, this is what I'm here to do. Right. And, uh, but thankfully, as the next chapter, and we are really short on time, so we're going to have to make this very quick, but I think it will almost be a, an abortion if we didn't talk about chapter 6. So we have, 
we have the suffering Savior. We have the 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 the, the humiliation of Christ. We have we've talked about his exaltation already, um, but the cross wasn't the end of the story, as it were. We have chapter six in the book, and how vitally important is the resurrection of Christ in this entire view of the glory of Christ? Well, maybe uh, maybe one way for me to tie all of this together in this connection is to uh, talk about the place of our union with Christ in this book. And in Scripture, um, we're united to Christ. We are identified with Jesus Christ and everything that he has done, he's done for us. And uh, you can see this uh, in, in parallels to every aspect of his life. Uh, he's conceived by the power of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. We're born again by the Spirit and brought into union with Christ. Um, he walks in uh, obedient life, and he does so on our behalf. But then the Spirit transforms us into his likeness in our sanctification. So we're justified by his obedience and by his death, uh, but also by these things we are sanctified. Well, then in his resurrection... We are united to him, and there are several consequences to this. On the one hand, uh, without going into much detail, I think in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul speaks of the resurrection as Christ's justification. Uh, in other words, Christ was publicly vindicated by the Father that he was righteous. Mm. And so as we share in Christ's resurrection, we too are publicly vindicated and our union with Christ in his resurrection first declares that death no more has dominion over us that the guilt and power of sin are broken and then this relates to our sanctification but also to our glorification and so we see from the new birth all the way to the new heavens and the new earth we are united to Jesus Christ in his resurrection and in order to tie these themes together, basically what I do in this chapter is walk uh, the reader through the argument of the greater portion of Romans chapter 8. And you'll have to read the chapter to get the full orb argument, but what I basically argue is this. Because Christ is risen, we are risen. Mm. Not simply we will be risen, but we are risen now. And what that means is that because the Spirit is in us and the Spirit unites us to Christ, we will mortify the deeds of the flesh. We will walk in uh, a type of resurrected living, even in this life. Uh, the holiness of Christians is a testimony that we are united to the risen Christ who is in heaven. And we mm -hmm. are living as citizens of heaven. And as it were, we have one foot in heaven. Uh, even as we walk in this life. So next time you think about your personal holiness, uh, think about it this way, that this is the only way on earth that you really begin to enjoy heaven. And if we don't enjoy personal holiness now or do not long for it and pray for it and strive for it, then how would we possibly enjoy the hope of heaven since it's the completion of this process? But what happens is, uh, according to Romans 8, we're also groaning. And we're longing for the fullness of our redemption. We're not saved in the fullest sense of the term until we are saved in body and soul before God. 
But the profound thing in the chapter then is that Paul goes on to argue that the creation is groaning as well. Uh, the earth under our feet, as it were, is longing in agony for the resurrection of the dead because it was subjected to futility because of our sin. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the chapter argues, not only has an effect on us, but effect on the entire creation. And basically uh, what I believe the chapter is arguing is that we're living resurrected lives now. We long for resurrected bodies and the perfection of this life in heaven. And the creation itself wants to share in our resurrection and wants to be transformed. So we'll have resurrected lives now, resurrected bodies in the future, and a resurrected world to live in in heaven. And I do argue from the chapter that that is a uh, transformation of the present world and not an obliteration of it. And uh, try to show how that fits with other passages of Scripture. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about all of these chapters, but... Uh, this chapter in particular, I think, gives us a full picture of the hope that lies before us and really how that um, has deep impact upon our Christian life in the present. Absolutely. Definitely. And in fact, the last chapter, and then there's some excellent practical elements <clears throat> that are applied to if Christ is now uh, he, he, in his humiliation and his sufferings, he went to the cross, he was resurrected, he's now exalted, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is the reigning King of kings, Lord of lords. What does that mean for me today, living in his church, living in his world, and, and how I interact and operate within all those things? Um, you'll have to get the book to read about those, because we are flat out of time, because I promised this man he would be off this thing at 12.30 Eastern time. Um because, as you may know, he's a pastor and busy. Um, and other reasons we won't even mention <laughs> that are going on this week that are not normal for a week. Um, people are visiting. Okay, don't want to leave people hanging too badly. But if uh, really, if you are, if, if anything that we've said has intrigued you, has caused you, th look, the book's not that expensive, right? It's, it's not. Um, I, I think the back of the book here, if I can read it through my awful bifocals is $12. Now, I don't know what RHB is offering it for. I could probably find out in only a moment of time. Um, I think it's seven, but, seven or eight they do it. Yeah, that's that sounds just right. Uh, Christ, glory, your good is the name of the book. And um, the in case uh, I did, Kindle version is even cheaper. Yes, for those of you who like to read it. It is, it's $9 at RHB. That is heritagebooks.org. It's going for nine dollars, and I don't have the price for the Kindle, but apparently that's cheaper as well. So you have it; you have it in different formats. Uh, really, no excuse not to get it and read it. Um, we also sell it here at Greenville Seminary in the bookstore, um, so you can check that price too. I don't know how they compare. Um, what a terrible host I am for not being prepared on those things. But regardless, if you're interested in the book, it's Reformation Heritage Books. That's who publishes it. Heritagebooks.org. They sell it, um, and it's currently listed at $9, 144 pages. It is a paperback that I have creased to death, much to the chagrin of others who don't like when I do that. They say 100, but, 114 pages. Yeah, they have they have 144 on the website. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's what they have. I'm looking right. It's 116 pages. Yeah. 
And they say 144 on the thing. So that was obviously a typo from somebody, whoever does that. But it, be that as it may, doesn't matter. 144, 116, it's worth the time. And it's not one of these books you're probably going to read once and toss into a corner. Um, there's plenty of those out there. Um, it's the kind of book where you, you, you're going to come back to it, and, and especially as you have opportunity to, to talk with people about Christ and who he is and what he came to do. And um, it's, a, it's a great resource. And so I would encourage the listeners to get their hands on this um, book that you could probably read in a day. Um, you're not going to consume all the information that's in it in a day. You're going to spend a lifetime doing that. But you can read the material in a day anyway. So, well, Ryan, I, I promised I'd get you off and, and off the air, so let me do that. I do thank you um, again for being on. I know you're very busy, and um, but as usual, you have explained things very well, and I hope this conversation has uh, at least enticed, uh, encouraged people to uh, get the book and read it. No, thank you for having me, Bill. I always enjoy coming. Yeah, thank you. Let me uh, real quick wrap up for today. Um, what's coming up on the program? My assistant has been very busy. He has uh, locked me in for the next five, six weeks now with guests. So I'm in a position now to tell you at least who's coming up next week. Uh, so Lord willing, we're going to have a, a man on. His name is Peter Hubbard. Um, he has written a book called Love Into Light, The Gospel, The Homosexual, and The Church. Now, I don't need to explain to the listening audience why that is important. Given our culture and the, situa- and the circumstances we find, especially the United States, dealing with on the homosexual issue, um, this is a, a, a discussion that needs to be had, and, and more often than it has been. And so we're going to talk with the author about this book, uh, Lord willing, next week. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and God bless.